welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, we have an episode of Software Engineering Daily, where I was interviewed by Jeff Meyerson, the gracious host of Software Engineering Daily at Strata Data San Francisco in mid-March this year. And so we talked about a range of things, primarily centered around data engineering, data architecture, and infrastructure, with a little bit of segue into machine learning. And many of the topics of the conversation we had resurfaced in the news, for example, uh, Hadoop and 5G and streaming and all of these things. And if you want to get more information about any of these topics, including deep dives, trainings, and case studies and use cases, make sure you come to Strata Data in New York City this coming fall to September. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to start off by saying I have been listening to the O'Reilly Data Show before I listened to my own podcast, before my own podcast even existed. And it has served as a lot of inspiration for how I have done some of my shows, particularly the the ones in the data space. Even like very early on, I would listen to your show and hear Matei Zaharia or Aluxio founder. That's Howie Wan Lee. And that was kind of in the earlier days of the data space. It's really matured a lot since then. But I just want to say your show has been a super valuable resource to me. Great. And it's, I don't know if you know this, but it actually was an accidental podcast because uh, the original idea was YouTube. We would interview people on YouTube. But then I started thinking, this is crazy. You'd have to schedule someone to come into a studio. Because our, you know, our video team has very exacting standards. And then at some point, I just decided we did end up recording a few YouTube videos in the studio. And then that's when it dawned on me, this is not going to be workable because uh, it limits me to the people who can go into the studio. And so what we ended up doing was uh, I just used the audio for those first few YouTube interviews. And then that became kind of the, that became the podcast. At that time, I think podcasts were already big, but not, not as big as they are now. And so then after that, it was just, let's just do podcasts. And what I liked about your show from the early days was you were talking about very technical subjects, but you also were capable of maintaining a conversational tone, which I think is a hard balance to strike. But it seemed like you were, from the beginning, very familiar with who these people were. You were intimately familiar with the projects as well, such that you could maintain a casual conversation about them. And I think that speaks to to your background in, in the space. Can you describe the data space to me from the point of view of when you started working on the Strata Conference. I think this was back in 2005. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, so me personally started getting involved in the Strata Conference in 2014. So I started getting really involved in late 2013 to plan the 2014 conferences. So at that time, I guess the big move there was uh, the new generation of big data technologies, which revolved around, I think, mostly... MPP databases and Hadoop. So this was uh, technologies that could allow you to scale out 
run queries on your data on commodity hardware. I think there was ability to scale out, but you it would cost a lot of money. And so when Google first published the MapReduce paper, I think that led Doug Cutting and Mike Afrella to kind of take those ideas and start the Hadoop project. And so that made that some of those ideas available to startups, frankly. So in 2014, you had, I would say the big topic was Hadoop. And then it was around that year that I first started playing around with Spark. So I became close to the team in Berkeley. Berkeley Amp Lab that created Spark. And so I started using it. I loved it. And so I started really writing about it. And I think in many ways, I kind of helped get people excited about Spark. Yeah. And so, and then obviously there were also talk about machine learning. At that time, I think machine learning, so people were using either R or uh, some of the machine learning libraries in Python at that time, which it still is popular, scikit-learn. But I think the resurgence of deep learning was around 2011 for speech and 2012 for uh, computer vision and images. And actually, now that I think about it, in 2014, the first strata that I was a chair of, back then I had a track on tutorial data strata called Hardcore Data Science, which was more, uh, because I come from the academic world, which was a way for me to invite my academic friends to speak at this industry conference. So one of the speakers at that conference was Actually, Ilya Sutskever, who now is the research director at OpenAI, so he was still at Google. So at that time, deep learning was really just limited to a few select groups. So you almost had to apprentice with one of these groups in order to learn it because there weren't really usable libraries. There was some good documentation. And so you'd have to apprentice in one of these groups. And in fact, I think I may have a post about a talk that Ilya gave at a meetup where he basically said, yes, yeah, so this is all about oral traditions being passed from one person to another at that point, right? So obviously, fast forward to today, you have well-documented libraries and researchers publishing papers right and left, usually accompanied by code on GitHub with from PyTorch or, or TensorFlow, right? So, yeah. So uh, now that I think about it, actually, the first strata I was involved in, we had deep learning. Yeah. When I think about strata, for some reason, the Hadoop vendor wars comes to mind because I think of strata as this true meeting of the worlds of open source, academia, and industry. And Hadoop was such a foundational environment for how that world has developed. How do you remember the Hadoop vendor wars and what impact do you think they had on how the industry formed? Well, I think if you look at the space back then, right, so you had Hortonworks had the Hadoop Summit, which was, I think, the original Hadoop event that came out of the the group at Yahoo. And then uh, Cloudera shortly after created Hadoop World. So, and then O'Reilly had an event called Strata, which was an attempt to gather in a new uh, vendor neutral setting, big data enthusiasts, but also this, this relatively new job title of data scientist. So I think Hadoop Summit and Hadoop World were more focused on Hadoop, rightly so, because that's in the name of the conference. So where Strata had a bigger footprint. So obviously, I don't think Strata could compete with either Hadoop World or Hadoop Summit as far as the depth of Hadoop content, but we had content that wasn't Hadoop, right? So some of these open source MPP databases and also data science. 
and so it's, it was a fierce battle between uh, Hortonworks and, and Plodera. So, I, I mean, I leave that to the historians to analyze, but uh, I think there's well-documented uh, outrageous blog posts on, on uh, both sides. And I think uh, beefs on the mailing lists for various projects. But now they're one big happy family. That's right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. Obviously, since the world of Hadoop and HDFS, we've had a lot of maturity in the richness of the computation models that people have developed. So there was the early movements beyond just a big file system and a MapReduce model on top of that big file system. You had the interfaces like Pig and Hive. And then you started to have the real rich computation models like Storm. And I think that was around the same time Kafka came out, or maybe, maybe yeah, Spark, I think Spark. Spark too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Spark was maybe, uh, so I first started using Spark, as I remember it, in 2014, in my version 0.5, 0.6. So, I mean, at first I was a bit resistant, honestly, because it's Scala, right? So I, I don't want to learn a new language, right? So, but then I got kind of hooked into Scala a little bit because of Spark, and also because Spark was just fast, right? Because it was in memory. And then suddenly the things that were a bit awkward to do in Hadoop because they were slow, like machine learning, you could do in a scale-out fashion. And then, yeah, actually the first Spark meetup I went to was when the AmpLab folks in Berkeley introduced Spark streaming. So it wasn't actually released. They just said, so in the next release of Spark, we're going to add this thing called Spark streaming. Oh, by the way, it's the same API so whatever you're doing in batch, you can just—it's the same programming model for streaming. And I was just blown away by the reaction of the audience because it was almost disbelief at that point, right? Why well, was wait, that so wait, important? Well, wait a minute. So you mean I—I I don't have to have two systems. I have—I can use the same system to do batch and because that was the lambda. Time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and then I think after that, uh, I think Spark evolved to do many other things but i think they were also first I, as i remember it they were also first in, as far as introducing this notion of sql on top of streaming right so what they called structured streaming yeah and then obviously today as you point out right so we went from this big distributed file system to now object source being more performant right so so now you can go to the cloud and maybe there's, for many, many tasks, there's not much of a difference between object store and, uh, and one of these distributed file systems, particularly in, if you have infinite band in the data center for some of these cloud providers. You touched on the importance of streaming, and I think the way that you framed it was that it's perhaps a unification point for what was previously this Lambda architecture where you had the fast data leg and the slow data leg. Can you tell me what's the importance of streaming and why streaming changed the, the world of big data so much? Well, I think it was just also the fact that the data sources were streaming, right? So people were generating data in real time, so they had to have a way to process that data in real time, which also changed the way the business user started thinking, which is, oh, maybe I can start making decisions on more recent data as opposed to waiting for the thing to complete overnight and making decisions. I can make decisions based on, uh, you know, honestly, in the beginning, it was more near real time, right? So let's recompute every hour and then it became every 20 minutes and then every 10 minutes. And then, so I think a lot of these technologies, while they're cool, at the end of the day, they only get adopted if the business user can see a use case and a reason for for 
I mean, why isn't batch good enough, right? So, well, maybe for in some domains it is, but maybe not for recommendation systems, right? So, or fraud detection, maybe it needs to be more real time. Why are there so many streaming frameworks? That is mostly an artifact of the the engineering mindset of wanting to build something from scratch, I think. Yeah, it's a mystery, but I don't think it's something that we can stop. I mean, just engineers will build these things. If they always feel like whatever system is out there doesn't suit their particular use case, so they have to rebuild it from scratch. So that's not where I would put my efforts, right? Because as, as you point out, there's probably enough options. There's probably other problems you can solve where you can make a, a more dramatic impact. Can you explain Apache Beam to me? I think Apache Beam is was an attempt of Google to have a unified way to program all of these different streaming frameworks, right? So they had to have uh, buy-in from the different communities. So I think they had this, the people who cooperated a lot with them were probably the Flink community. I think lesser cooperation. I think to some extent they all cooperated, but uh, I think maybe lesser cooperation from the Storm, or maybe Storm community, but Heron wasn't. By cooperation, I mean dedicating someone to making sure they were compliant with Beam, right? So I don't think the Kafka community was either, so. Yeah, so it's uh, like, I think it's one of these things that in practice would have been good, but there's all these communities are busy fixing their own problems, right? So, yeah, yeah. So it was like a an API that you could use to run streaming jobs on Flink or Spark yeah, or Storm. I, yeah, I think that because was... Because the different streaming frameworks are making different trade-offs, and so you want a compliant API so that you can just write one API and, and have it fit to different use cases. That was, I think that was the intent, yeah. What are those trade-offs that they're exploring, that the different streaming frameworks are exploring? Oh, I think they were just built by, I mean, so different engines, so they have different uh, plus and minuses. So throughput, latency are the main things, I think, as far as I, as far as I understand. And of course, when it comes down to it, reliability and ease of operations, mm-hmm. right? So, And one axis is that spark perspective on micro batches versus like the flink perspective of every single item is is a unit of of the stream right that's a fairly notable contrast yeah i think so and i think this uh, from the spark community perspective and they've had they've had projects to make that distinction go away but i don't know how much uh, effort they've put into it because i think the reality is from their perspective right so from their perspective they would say 90 to 95% of use cases Doesn't can, matter. can be covered by microbatch. And so, yes, they can uh, cover all 100% if they make a big engineering push to do so, but then the project needs other things. Right. So, is data flow kind of, do you see data flow as kind of that unified model, the Google data flow paper that perhaps would solve for every use case? I think so, but you should talk to Tyler. Okay, about I'll talk that. to Tyler. I'm trying to get him on the show. <laughs> yeah, he's here. Yeah. Anyway, I think I think he take he prefers conferences to podcasts. When Kafka came out, did you recognize how important that section of the data stack would become? So I guess I should say yes. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, in retrospect, yes. Right. So I think Jay Krebs wrote a post in a small book for us called "I Love Logs." which I think made the case for for a system like Kafka. But on the other hand, in retrospect, you had systems like that in the enterprise from vendors, right? So, But they weren't, maybe they weren't 
the scale out systems and they weren't open source, right? But yeah, generally, so a streaming application now, in retrospect, you need a messaging layer, a, a processing layer, and a storage layer, right? So, but don't sleep on Apache Pulsar, which is also a great system. Not sleeping on it. How would you contrast Pulsar and Kafka? At a high level, I think that Pulsar had the luxury of coming after. So they could they could obviously observe what how Kafka was designed and uh, they could make some improvements and, and support maybe uh, workloads that Kafka was not originally designed to do. And also, I think it has also also has a reputation for being easier to operate. And also, I guess I shouldn't say this here, but uh, it doesn't suffer from as much data loss. But you should talk to both communities. I shouldn't. Uh, I will. Yeah, I'll talk to I'll talk to them more. So I know that Pulsar people are here. There's a company commercializing Pulsar called Streamio. So you are describing Kafka as the messaging layer, I think. But there is a lot of, as I see it, there's a lot of data gravity to that messaging layer, and and so. That's why it makes sense to build things like Kafka Streams or KSQL on that. But when you start to do that, it starts to look, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but Kafka starts to look almost like another data lake. Would would you say that's that's accurate? Or or do you think there's just considerable, is there considerable archiving from Kafka into the data lake? I mean, maybe one can make the observation that it starts looking that way, but it wasn't really designed for that, right? So... So it wasn't really designed to archive data over a long period of time, right? So just like anything else, it could evolve, right? So, yeah, so we'll see. I mean, I I guess uh, that's the part of the streaming stamp that I think benefits from having more options, like now that we have Pulsar, right? So we'll see how, how the different communities... Uh, it's good to have, as you pointed out, in the stream processing, maybe we have too many. But if we only have one choice, then... Uh, that's not good either, right? So it's good for two communities to push each other. Are there any other sectors of the data stack that you're seeing new open source projects in? There's many sectors, but I don't think there's any open source projects at the scale of Spark or Kafka in terms of popularity, right? So, But there's bits and pieces of uh, things happening around data catalogs and Data, it's a data catalog. Data catalog at a high level is basically what data do I have, who's using it, right? So in order for you to, as an enterprise to understand access patterns and, and what data is available. Also, I guess one area where there's a lot of activity maybe is around these data science platforms, but they're not, most of them aren't open source, right? So that generally, that term generally means when you get to the point when you now have a team of data scientists, you should have a place where they can use libraries that they like to use in a setting where they can collaborate, share not only models, but maybe even share data pipelines and features. And the more advanced data science platforms will have automation tools built in, so-called AutoML for automating the model selection, hyperparameter tuning phase, but also even automate maybe some of the feature engineering, feature validation steps. And then the ideal scenario is that the data science platform actually is not just for prototyping, that you can use it to push things to production. So that's one area. So the other area actually that uh, just caught my attention is the whole area of develop, developing machine learning applications, right? So you have tools for software development. Now you're, you're beginning to hear about tools for ML development, right? So 
there's a company here at Strata called Comet ML, and there's another startup called Verta.ai. But what has really caught my attention is this open source project from Databricks called MLflow, which is 10 months old. And when it first came out, I thought, oh, yeah, so we don't have anything like this. It might have a decent chance of success, but I didn't really pay that close attention to it until recently. So now, fast forward to today, you have 80 contributors for 40 companies and 200 plus companies using it, right? And so what's good about MLflow is that it has three components and you're free to pick and choose. You can use one, two, or three, right? So, But uh, based on their service, the most popular component that people use is the one for tracking and managing machine learning experiments. And it's also designed to be useful for you if you're an in- individual data scientist, but it's also designed to be used by teams of data scientists. So they have documented use cases of MLflow where you have a company managing thousands of models in production. So they have uh, many, many data scientists. So what else? So then going more into the AI application space, I'm excited by another project from Berkeley called Ray, which is a distributed processing framework written in C++. But, you know, if you think about, if you have a cluster, you have either kind of a lot of find a lot of controls so you could run Kubernetes, Mesos, whatever virtualization, or you have more specialized libraries like Spark, Kafka, and then now it seems like there's something in the middle, right? So you have serverless, which are functions as a service, and then something as a race uh, is also somewhere in the middle between lots of control and ease of use, right? So what's nice about Ray is it's written in C++, but the API is small and it's python so for example this is what pyron uses under the covers yeah uh no no okay no, sorry no. i'm sorry so so one of the things that people can use with ray today is a library built on top of ray called modin which is m-o-d-i-n so one line of code you add to your python code and then your pandas will run much faster on a single laptop but more importantly it scales out to a cluster right so one line of code and then Ray also was also designed with this next generation of machine learning applications in mind, specifically reinforcement learning and AutoML. So the two most popular libraries on top of Ray after this modem is RLlib, which is a reinforcement learning library on top of Ray, which means that actually so reinforcement learning is not as popular at this point. It's also harder for data scientists to get into. But what RLlib allows you to do is basically just use reinforcement learning just like you would from scikit-learn, you know? I mean, so, and then they also are beginning to get into a kind of distributed training of deep learning models using Ray and AutoML. You alluded to MLflow, and I think that speaks to Matei Zaharia's capability of making machine learning easier to work with. I think that's been his one of his focuses for a while. I've heard him say, you know, when he was kind of in 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 academia and started to think about Spark, he was he realized he could go down the path of making more complex machine learning training systems or he could make machine learning more accessible. What are the ways in which dealing with machine learning is still too hard? What are the biggest bottlenecks you see in the everyday developer? Well, I think it's because it's uh, it's really not a model at the end. So you have a model, which is an algorithm at the end of it. 
But really, you have a, a pipeline which involves another algorithm, which is to train the model that you have at the end, right? So, so it relies on data. It relies on a usefully computational graph embodied by this pipeline, which means you have to actually keep track of many things, right? So even the model, even choosing the model itself can be can lead to many, many choices, right? So what deep learning architecture should I use? What should the architecture look like? How many layers, right? So what parameters should I use? That's just the model. And then to get the data in place to, for the model to absorb is another pipeline. So there's a lot to keep track of, which means that uh, if machine learning gets to the point where it's deployed in many mission-critical applications, that means regulators are going to start looking at machine learning more closely. Hackers who want to attack machine learning are going to look at it more closely, which means you need to be able to audit uh, and, and trace uh, your machine learning pipeline from end to end. That's why there's all these tools that need to be built, right? So data lineage tools, tools for uh, keeping track of what you did when you set up your experiment. Where did the data come from, right? So and all these things. So it, it presents itself with a, a different set of challenges. So actually, I was talking to someone yesterday about data lineage. I said, uh, in principle, it's easy to do if you only have one framework that you're dealing with, right? Because imagine in a company, they have so many systems. Each of these systems can touch the data and modify and, and tweak it. And so essentially, a data lineage system means you have to have logging built into each of these systems well i mean it, that might be easy to do if you have like a few frameworks in your company right so but you know as you know i mean even startups they start out with one or two frameworks and then another team wants to move faster they introduce another tool and then and then suddenly you have 50 different open source libraries so what you're gonna have to build logging into each of these tools in order to have a really good data linear system which I actually, I was uh, joking with someone. I said, w which means that's a company, right? Because so, if it's an easy problem, it's not a company. <laughs> yeah. One of the things you touched on yesterday, I think, in, in your keynote, at least what I've heard, I didn't see your keynote, but the consolidation of data scientist and data engineer into machine learning engineer. Why is that happening? Well, I, first of all, I, I don't think they're consolidating, right? So, I mean, I think that I would say the machine learning engineer is somewhere in between engineering and operations and data science, right? So with maybe a stronger background in engineering, but knows enough machine learning in order to build models. And with the emphasis, the role emphasizes productionizing models, right? So what I said in my keynote was I was curious as to what extent data scientists are rebranding themselves into this new role. Actually, my, my question in my Twitter poll was quite precise. I said, if you, called your, if you described yourself or used the job title data scientist two years ago, what are you using today? So I said, so the options were data scientist, machine learning engineer, research scientist, or deep learning engineer, right? So half said they were still using data scientists. If you look at the number of people who said machine learning engineer, 32%, but throw in another 4% who said deep learning engineer, because that's just a machine learning engineer that specializes in deep learning, right? So, so you're at 36%. So machine learning engineer, like I said, stronger engineering skills, anecdotally higher, much more higher compensated, because it's much more mission critical, such as production systems, right? So to what extent can data scientists just 
start calling themselves machine learning engineer. I think if they actually maybe improve their engineering skills, yes. But have a third of them or more done that over the last two years? I question that, right? So maybe there's just maybe somewhat of a rebranding happening there as well. And then that title, research scientist, I threw in there because it seems to be more specific to the people who are able to really go in there and, and, and build models and tweak them and really take your modeling to the next step. And it's 2019. What are the other trends that you're seeing in this strata conference that you didn't see last year? I think the highest level trend is the strong interest in data is crystallizing itself to strong interest in machine learning. And in, in this particular conference, we've tried to kind of emphasize to companies that, you know, if you want to be serious about machine learning, don't just think about modeling. You have to build these foundational technologies in order to build a sustainable machine learning practice. So I think that the, the big trend is people are interested in machine learning. Machine learning will impact how we build uh, software. And so then the question is, how do you distinguish yourself from the pack? How do you go from being one-off machine learning team to one that really has a good practice around it? I think there's a strong interest among companies to be in this camp where they have machine learning practice that's strong and has uh, it can be sustained over a period of time. Now, there's all these companies that have what I've heard you refer to as a data moat. So you take a company like an insurance company that's been around for 50 years, they've got so much data. They would love to be using it in practical ways, and they could probably make a lot of money using it in practical ways. They are trying to build out this quote-unquote data platform that you've talked about, and they could build it by composing together a bunch of open source projects. They could compose together cloud solutions. They could do some combination of the two. They could go to some vendor that's offering them an all-in-one data platform. How should they evaluate that decision landscape? So, I mean, I think, as you probably know, adopting new technologies, it's probably better to start with use cases, right? So, I mean, I think actually uh, when we survey companies and uh, we try to get them to self-select level of maturity of machine learning, right? So the people who are just getting started, their main bottleneck is just trouble identifying use cases and simultaneously convincing the rest of the org about the value of these technologies. So I would start there. So, right, so what, what are some good use cases for these technologies and figure out how to build from those initial use cases? Which brings up the point that one of the underappreciated things about uh, uh, machine learning and data technology in general is it's you have to educate the business people too, you know, because in the previous generation of technologies, when it revolved around BI, you had to, get people to start making decisions using data, right? So with data in mind, instead of just using intuition. So with machine learning, same way, you have to educate people in terms of what can be automated using this current generation of technologies and which of our workflows are more likely to lend themselves to automation. But I think that in, in our surveys, bear this out that uh, changing the culture of a company is just as important as changing the tech. I think one way to think about top-level use cases is the operational analytics world where you have people who are analysts looking at things that are getting served to them by Druid, Druid-based applications from Imply or from like superset BI tools where they're getting up-to-date 
streaming data, that's offering them real-time analytics. How is the front-end analyst-facing data analysis world changing? Well, I mean, I think for one thing, the tools are getting better. There's a, I don't know if you've gone to the expo hall, there's, I invited a research project from MIT called Northstar. So they have basically like a minority report user interface, but it has uh, AutoML. So you can not only just do exploratory data analysis, you can start building models as an analyst, right? So it's also- How technical do you have to be? There's no programming, right? So it's all- but you know you have to know un, you have to know the underlying data, right? So and then you can start exploring. You can so it's got auto ML capabilities. You can build simple models and and then these simple models you have an export function into Python. So then you can hand it off to someone in your in your team, right? So I think user interface is going to be hugely important. For one thing, uh, this we're not at the point where uh, many workflows can be fully automated. So you still need domain experts. So we're talking about augmentation for the most part. So user interface, which might include in the future, honestly, if machine learning is going to be impacting a lot of tasks and workflows, one of the elements of the user interface might be an explanation layer, right? So how did the system arrive at this decision? So user interface, not just for usability, but just for putting the end user at ease to use continue to trust and use the application. Actually, the, which brings me back to the original thing we were, earlier thing we were talking about, this data scientist versus ML engineer. So one of the things that's happened is because data scientists, the title has exploded and gotten so popular and gotten so covered is that there's been kind of, in my mind, somewhat of a dilution of the title, right? So I was just talking to someone on Tuesday at this conference. He works for an unnamed uh, uh, car sharing service. There's many of them, right? <laughs> and he said in their company, they have basically two types of data scientists, the data scientists that we kind of assume are the real data scientists. And then he said there's the people who used to be called business analysts who do mostly SQL, they're also called data scientists. And I told him, look, that's confusing because that's happened. that happened a few years ago with another unnamed tech company. And you know, someone like us from the outside, we're confused because... These two people are data scientists, but they really are different, right? So, And he said, well, there's nothing we can do about it, Ben, because people like this title, and that's a career path. And so they, there's nothing we can do. They, they want to have this title. So I think what the machine learning engineer title introduces is, you know, it's a, it's a combination of machine learning and engineer, but engineer is in there. So engineer, I think by implication, requires more technical skills, which might be a little harder to inflate. Yeah. So. Maybe that's, besides the fact that it is a different, it emphasizes different things. It's much more production focused as opposed yeah. to the prototyping. Since you mentioned car companies, car technology companies, I've done a couple shows with self-driving car infrastructure engineers. And from what I can tell, those applications are going to drive some really big innovations in the data engineering landscape. And one way that I that I think about that is the fact that these cars are driving around with big servers in them, collecting so much data, which is a really weird model compared to like the other kinds of applications we've had. But you could imagine those kinds of advancements being applied to things like I'm carrying around a smartphone and, you know, what what kinds of downstream impacts do you think the data engineering and the self-driving car space will yield? I mean, I think for me, the more interesting thing beyond self-driving cars is 5G, 
right? Because 5G is, uh, I think the rollout is beginning to happen. So I think by 2020, we'll have a lot of 5G. Not Maybe not a lot, but we're going to have enough 5G coverage to start seeing what kind of applications come out of it, right? Because now we're talking about uh, machine-to-machine applications that we can't imagine at this point, right? So, and I think a lot of the infrastructure that we built will be put to the put to a test, put to the test, right? So, with these, with the rollout of five G, and obviously uh, there'll be a lot of machine learning built into some of these applications at the edge and uh, at the data center. So, I think the more interesting thing for me to watch in the beyond just the specifics of the self-driving car are two things: five G and specialized hardware for ML, both at the, for inference and training and both for edge devices and at the data center. Because both are going to, we're going to start seeing glimpses of both of them later this year, right? So Q3, Q4 will have new hardware for training ML and deep learning, which will be much faster than what we have now. And given that we're in a very empirical era for machine learning, where there's not a lot of theoretical understanding for how models work and when they work, when they don't work. And so people need to explore a lot of models. That means if we can accelerate training, the researchers and data scientists can explore more models. So maybe we'll have more interesting models. But the time frame for these, both of these things is later this year. So the good news is that actually a lot of our infrastructure will probably be still fi- be fine. Right, uh, but we don't know until we both of these things come online. But I'm pretty sure that most of the data infrastructure we have in place will be able to handle some of these real-time applications. Yeah. What's your perspective on the present and future of podcasts? Present and future of podcasts. I think in the U.S. and in the West, or, or in, at least in countries I travel, it seems like uh, we're still in the early stages. But there's other areas in the world where they don't seem to matter, like China. Like I, you know, I don't. I dare short videos, right? So no podcasts are huge in China. Uh, are they? They're p- paid podcasts, actually. Uh, paid people podcasts. make tons of money off paid but, podcasts. Uh, but uh, when I'm there, it seems like people are more interested in consuming short video. But I mean, that's the same with pop culture here. I think I mean, people are addicted to their Instagram. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But whenever we've had conferences in China for the last few years, I travel there regularly. I just don't hear people talking about podcasts. There's, I don't know if you're interested in this, but there's, but a, there's, there's, uh, there's podcasters here who talk about what's happening in China. That's big, but in China itself, I don't hear that much. It's happening for learning. People use it for learning, but but here, I think we're still in the early stages, and I think. You know, the one thing that I worry about is uh, maybe too much consolidation too early, right? So, I mean, because some of the people might get absorbed and they, and maybe uh, too many shows start becoming too slick and too alike, right? So, but we'll see. Ben Lorca, thanks for coming on the show and thanks for producing a podcast that's been really important to me. Thank you. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Big Data or Keep up with the latest on the Strata Data Conference at StrataConf. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.